0: You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this first lesson of the Ruth module, Philip Edwards will see how God involves himself in our ordinary lives, working behind the scene to fulfil his purposes. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk to see all the latest news, events and the other ministries we have to offer. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching.
1: The Book of Ruth, it's a beautiful story of loving commitment but also we see the, the unseen hand of God working throughout the book of Ruth. So there's two things that we're going to be looking at here, the providential hand of God at work and this, the beautiful story of this person who comes to faith in God. It was in the lockdown last year, I think it was about March time, where we weren't allowed to do a fat lot. And I thought, I need to get myself a project to hold myself together here. So I thought one thing I could do, I could read through the Bible in two months. Now, a bit of a challenge, uh, but I knew because I had, as a church, we had once read the Bible from beginning to end, non-stop and I knew it took about 80 hours to read. Uh, when we did it in the church, we started on a Sunday night at about six, and we finished on Thursday morning, early Thursday morning. So I knew it was doable, and you just read at a nice steady pace. And then we also, I think a few years later, we did the whole of the New Testament, and that took, that took about 24 hours. So if you've got a spare 24 hours, just sit down and open up the New Testament and uh, you'll finish it before you drop off to sleep 24 hours later. So yeah, and, and just, just stay with it. It was, it was a lovely experience. As I read it, I thought, well, am I going to cope with reading it sort of straight off? Because to read great volumes of the Bible is a a hard thing to do. So I set myself like three sessions a day. So I'd only read for about half an hour, morning, uh, noon and and evening. And and then just, uh, yeah, it, it was comfortable. It was all right. Although reading the scriptures is always a delight... I struggled. I suppose I struggled, and I was getting a little bit, um, I don't know, depressed, I suppose, as I was reading it. I was i was getting a bit down, a bit disappointed, not in God or what God was saying, but it was more in how people reacted to God, people's rebellion or people's lack of faith or or, or people's ignorance in the Bible. And so, as I'm working my way through the books, I'm, I'm thinking, well, you know, there were one or two high spots, but even then it would crash down again. You know, you'd read about Abraham and then you have to read about Lot and, and all the other stuff that goes on, you know. And so, yeah, it was, it was a bit up and down. I got to the book of Judges and uh, this was awful. The, the book of Judges is probably the darkest period in the history of the people of Israel, they just—it says that men just did what they wanted to do. They paid no attention to God; they did whatever they they felt like doing. So I'm I'm getting through the end of Judges, and then I turn over, and then there's this precious little book, just no more than three or four pages, just four chapters this beautiful story of Ruth. It was as though God says, I think by now we need to put something in there that picks everyone up if they're going to read the Bible through, because they might not make too much more of this. Anyway, so as I read this book, it just touched me. I just thought this is this is wonderful, really. It, it's so beautiful. And it is about this romance, this love affair, and like I said, behind it there's this invisible helper, all the time working behind the the scene. And as the story unfolds, the 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 reader is is urged to to delight in the certainty and the security of the providence of God. You see it on every page. You just see God working behind the scene. God doesn't do anything miraculous. He never appears. He never speaks to anyone, he never does anything, but he's there all the time. And it's as though everyone in the story, they know that God is there, he's behind the scene. The little book that can be read in just 15 minutes actually, it reminds us that God manages global events, but he's always concerned with ordinary people the ordinariness of ordinary people. And these people that we read about in this book, there's nothing special about them. Nothing special about uh, Naomi or Ruth or Boaz, really. He's a man of influence, but but there's nothing special about him. So it's great that you think, well, God is, is interested in me. He's talking about me here. Let me just give you a brief overview of the story before we launch into it, but you might have read it already, and I'm sure before we meet again, you will have read it or listened to it on your you know, your device just several times, so the story really gets into you. Ruth is a young Moabite widow. Because of her love and commitment to her mother-in-law, she leaves her life of idol worship in Moab and she worships or comes into faith with the true God. Once in Israel, uh, God leads Ruth to a man named Boaz, who she eventually marries. As a result, Ruth becomes the great grandmother of Israel's great King David, placing her in the ancestral line of the Messiah. So this. Moabite woman who has nothing to do with anything about God. She's miles away from God. She's drawn by him and she takes her place, uh, her, her place on the stage of life as it were, to play her part. Just like you, just like me. Now you think, well I'm not playing much of a part. You are. In God's economy you're playing a part. I want to read this first chapter. It's, it's four weeks we're doing the study. There are four chapters, so I'll deal with a chapter uh, each week. So I'm going to read from Ruth 1 and read through the, the chapter. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab, the man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the name of his two sons was Marlon and Kilian. They were Ephraimites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, uh, so Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with two sons. They married Moabite women one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Marlon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and a husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to to, uh, to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who would become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if, even if I uh, thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, And your God, my God, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabites, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So that's our first chapter. Moving home, that's not an easy thing to do. We wouldn't choose to move house lightly. I mean, if you are renting and you don't own any furniture and you haven't got any gadgets and it's just you and a few suitcases, that's not a problem. But for generally for people who've accumulated loads of stuff, moving home is is very costly and unsettling. Now, Elimelech, he wouldn't have had the same sort of uh, gadgetry that, that we would have. But it was still a big thing for him to pack everything up and to move out. He made a decision to leave Bethlehem. Bethlehem was his his hometown. It was the town where he had land. Remember, all of Israel were appointed land. Land was given by God. The land of Israel is God's land and he appointed it to the various tribes who appointed it to the various families. So he lived amongst his family, he would have lived amongst his tribe, he would have had his own property. So to leave was quite a big decision for them. His decision to leave was because there was a famine in the land in Bethlehem. Which was a strange event, because Bethlehem, the word means the house of bread, so probably they hadn 't experienced famine there at all, or maybe very rarely, but because of the famine, Limelech decides that he and his family should go and live in another country where there wasn 't a family uh, a famine, sorry. And so he becomes a resident in the nation of Moab. He traveled probably 40 to 50 miles from where he was to Moab. Was the famine a mark of God's displeasure with his nation? This was written, this story, probably in the time of the judges. and I said it was the darkest period in the history of Israel. And we know that God, because he was a covenant God... He would sometimes punish the people because of their disobedience. Remember the covenant said, if you do this, I'll do that. If you honor me, I'll honor you, and I'll look after you, and I'll care for you. But as they were turning away from God, often God would send an enemy upon them, or he would just send famine or drought, and so uh, they would suffer in that way. Well, we don't know if this was the case because uh, we're not told there's quite a lot of things we're not told so we sort of got to make some guesses we're not even told who wrote this book we don't know the author some suggest it might be uh, samuel but we don't know that other bethlehemites stayed they didn't all desert the community some of them stayed through if elimelech's journey to save the lives of his family was the reason for him going well his goal was definitely not achieved the three men of the family that's uh, as they died we read there the three men dying left naomi a widow isolated in a foreign country so that's quite distressing to be a widow in israel was quite distressing because there was no way of being supported. The family should have supported you or your society should have, but many times because of the evilness in people's hearts or they're just not caring for people. Widows weren't looked after too well, but to, to be an isolated widow in a foreign land was even more distressing. The history between Israel and their neighbour Moab, it wasn't good. Maybe you remember that when the children of Israel uh, left Egypt, came out of slavery, they had to pass through the land of Moab, and so they they sought permission, and and the people said, no, you you can't come near our land, we don't want you. Well, there were about two million people, so I'm not not too upset that they said, no, we don't want you tramping through our land, Um, you know. They thought they'd probably just take everything, eat everything. Uh, and so they were saying no to God. Anyway, that was, that was marked in Scripture. So there was a bad mark against Moab. And then we know that um, during the period of the judges, a king of Moab, his name was Eglon, he invaded Israel and he put the, the people of Israel, he pressed them into servitude for about 18 years until God delivered them. So, why Elimelech went to, went to Moab, I don't really know. He couldn't have worshipped God there. There was no worship of God there. Although it was a neighbouring country, it, it didn't exist. And, and they weren't too friendly to them. We must ask ourselves the question, did he lack faith in God? Why didn't he just stay put? and and believe that in Israel, that God would eventually provide and, and turn things around. If this was a foolish move, then the rest of the book of Ruth amply demonstrates to us that God's gracious providence is not bound up in man's foolishness. We're free, you know, to make choices. Sometimes we make foolish ones. But God doesn't hold that against us. God is only too willing to work with us, if we've made a wrong decision, to work it out, to to bring things around. Maybe Elimelech wasn't prepared to move or change in his attitude. We don't know. We have to think through and just surmise, why did they do this? Why did he die? Why did the two sons die? We don't know. The answers aren't there for us. It appears in Scripture that someone's name, a person's name, is is more significant than what we think of today as just naming people. To the Hebrew, his way of thinking is to, to know a person's name is to know his character, to know something about him supremely, God tells us his name. Remember when he spoke to Moses once, and he said to Moses, Moses, I know your name. Well, I remember reading this as a kid and thought, well, how funny that was. Of course, God knew Moses' name. Of course, it doesn't mean he knew his name. He says, he's saying, I know your character, Moses. I know I can trust you. And so the, the whole idea of knowing someone's name is, you know, their character, we looked at this quite a lot in our last uh, module, where we looked at the names of God, remember? Jehovah Jireh and Jehovah Rohi is our shepherd and our provider. He's the one in, who's with us in battle. Jehovah Nisai is, is the God who heals us. As God reveals his name, he's revealing to us his character. So it's who God reveals his name to, Not necessarily we read it in the Bible, but God reveals himself. God says, God might speak to you and say, my name's Jehovah Jireh. You go, oh, that's great. But God is is wanting to say, listen, I, I want you to believe in my character. This is my name and this is what I will do for you. So the Lord, we've looked at this before, it means Jehovah. It's God's personal name. It's the name that God gives Himself when He's talking about the covenant He wants with His people. A God who is bound by covenant. If we enter into a covenant with God, which we have through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, He says, Listen, if you keep up your end of the covenant, I'll keep up mine. My, my, my name is, is bound up with who I am and my character and I cannot lie. I, can, I have to keep the covenant. So let's have a look what the names of the people in this story are. Elimelech, it means my God is king. Now, should such a name not express faith in the confidence in God? If his name, which it means, my God is king, he wasn't living up to his own name. He was sorting things out for himself. He wasn't wasn't letting God be sovereign in his life. He made the decision to take his family and go to this foreign land. Now, while there is no promise in a trouble-free life for anybody, for any Christian particularly, There's always the promise of daily bread. We pray, don't we, in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread because God has promised to give us our daily bread. It's a promise. It's a covenant promise of God. As we keep the covenant promise of faith in Jesus Christ, he'll feed us on a daily basis. And the assurance that there is no need to be morbidly anxious about tomorrow, well, Obviously, a was. We don't need to worry about tomorrow. Part of the covenant that we've entered into with God is that we're not to worry and that he'll take care of us and he'll provide for us. So the principle of having a covenant God in the Old Testament is the same principle in the New Testament. God has entered into a covenant with us. It's a new covenant through Jesus Christ. Naomi means pleasant. Or lovely, delightful, the significance of this name comes into prominence uh, well later in in the chapter we read it this evening, after Naomi later returns from Moab back to Bethlehem, saddened by the the bitter experiences which she believed was from the hand of the Lord. She said to the women of Bethlehem, remember, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. So she saw the importance of names. Her name was pleasant, lovely, delightful. But she said, don't call me that. The Lord has been, well, he's dealt with me quite severely that my name should really be Mara. The Lord has made me bitter to some extent. Mara then means bitter. Now, the names of the two sons, I found this a little bit disconcerting. One was uh, uh, Marlon. It's linked with the root meaning of to be sick. Hmm. I don't know why you'd call your son Marlon if the root meaning of the word is to be sick but there we are perhaps God had something to do with this and perhaps this has something to do with why he died quite a young man. The other son's name was Killian and this is no better. It signifies something like failing or pining or even in a version i read annihilation i mean mentally calling your one son annihilation and the other to be sick anyway i don't i don't i don't understand all of this stuff i'm just putting it before you so you have to think through the stuff as well and and work it out uh how these things happen the the names orpah and ruth they're moabite names and their meaning is not too clear with the meaning of these ladies. Now, you could look up the the, the meaning of Ruth and it'll say something, but it doesn't mean it meant it because they were Moabite names in those days. Elimelech died. Both Marlon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. You need to think about death just for a little while i know this is a beautiful book and but we have to consider some things but it it, it comes around to something really beautiful in the end death in one sense is the most natural event isn't it we're all going to die and unless jesus comes and and saves us of that Everyone of you ever known dies everyone in history has died so so death is a very natural event but because we hide it, we don't see it. In fact, I was probably about 40 years of age before I saw a, the first dead person, which was, of course, one of my parents when they passed away. And funerals in this country, they don't leave the caskets open and things like that, so we see the dead. So so we sort of hide the dead. So to a lot of us, death is unnatural. But even to the christian death is unnatural because the nature of man is to live forever but death has invaded invaded into our bodies and so it takes us so in one way it's a very natural thing and in another way it's the most unnatural thing death reminds man of how fragile he is he it reminds him of his limits what significant did believers in Jehovah, place on death at the time of uh, Naomi and Limelech? Well, for the most part, death in the Old Testament is an ambiguous and shadowy state. There are verses that sort of, they counter each other. I'll read this one to you. These two verses come from the Psalms. This is quite depressing. This is in Psalm 88, verses 5 and 6. He says this, the Psalmist writes, "I am set apart with the dead, he says, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the darkest depths. That sounds a bit depressing. Well, uh, the people uh, prior to Christ's coming, would have leaving this world, would have gone to Hades. And so Hades was a place for the departed spirit. So I understand something of that writing. It's a little bit depressing. But then uh, another psalmist, he writes this in uh, Psalm 73 and 24, a more upbeat, positive attitude towards Jehovah. He says, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. So there seems, you know, two opposite pictures here. One quite depressing when you die and the other a little bit more hopeful. But for the believer today we're not depressed by death. I mean death is an enemy. We don't welcome death. We don't entertain it really. We we keep away from it uh, as far as possible as much as we can. But for the believer the resurrection of Jesus from the dead it fills us with a certainty that death brings unending fellowship with the Lord. Our bodies one day will be resurrected, we know this, to a more complete spiritual body, fitted for life in the next world. How devastating then this was for Naomi, that one person should be called to suffer so much. She was a woman of faith, a woman of prayer. She was a a covenant child of God. Devastating. Losing her home and then the three men in her family meant that there would be no heir by which their names could be continued and their inheritance guaranteed. It was though this family's name would be removed forever. And this was very important to Jewish people. God had given everyone land. And the idea was that they should, they should continue with that family and that name and that land forever, really. That was the plan of God. Surely it was undeserved in her life? Here we're introduced really to the dark side of God's providence, You say, is there a dark side to God? No, I never said that. I said there's a dark side to his providence. That some of the pains that we bear are really quite unbearable. Some of the circumstances that we experience and live through, they're really unjust. Unjust. we we're asking the question why lord i'm only doing my best why is this happening why what's the reason for this some of our questions they just stay unanswered we ask god to give us the answer we we can't make sense of it but god says nothing and there's something there of the the dark side of his providence See, God is there, God is in charge, God is sovereign, God knows exactly what's going on, we haven't done anything wrong, we haven't broken the covenant, and yet there's so much pain, there's so much injustice, unanswered questions. This faith that we learn from Naomi, sometimes it means a willingness to leave such questions in the mystery of God, in the confidence that in the brighter days he has shown himself trustworthy. We have many stories or testimonies of the trustworthiness of God, but then we could bring up stories where you go, I think God let me down. God didn't do what I expected him to do. It didn't work out the way I thought it would. And he's never given me a reason for it. Where do we go in such hard times? See, we're looking at Naomi. This whole chapter is about Naomi. We haven't really examined anything about Ruth yet. It's all about her. It's about her and her tremendous faith, when everything is, is so dark, so difficult for her. Faith will sometimes mean leaving unanswered difficulties in the hand of God. Faith, you just do that. I don't understand, you say, but I trust God. I know what it looks like, but I know God loves me and I trust him. That's part of faith. That's a part of faith that we all must learn. Such faith will be strengthening, or can be strengthened, by keeping in front of our minds the ways that God has helped us in the past. Remember that song, uh, we don't sing it now Uh, well there's lots of songs we don't sing now and I'm quite pleased that we've moved on from some of these songs but you know that uh, a ditty really count your blessings remember that one count your blessings count your blessings and name them Uh, well why would you want to count your blessings well I'll tell you why if your life was always in blessing you wouldn't have to count them would you Because what would be the point of counting them? Because here comes another blessing, another blessing, another blessing. But the idea of counting your blessings is you're not being blessed. That something's happening in your life. And if you're not careful, you're going to turn against God or turn away from him. So he's saying, count your blessings count them from the past. Remember the things that God did before. So when it's not working out quite like you want it to, remember those things from the past. Israel were good at that, weren't they? They were going constantly on about when God delivered them from Egypt and and all the wonderful things he did for them. That's why they had all the feasts, It was a time of looking back. It didn't matter how bad it got, they would look back and remind themselves of the blessings that God had brought in their life. Part of the spirituality of men and women of faith in Naomi's day was to meditate on the great acts of God in the past. We can learn from them how to keep faith alive then in the dark times when it's not all working out then remember the faithfulness of God remember those blessings that God did bring in your life Naomi hears some news it filters through to her the Lord has come to the aid of his people. This is what it says. In Moab, she heard, that the Lord had not abandoned his people by providing food for them. The God who comes to meet his people in need, he is the God who sets his people free. They had been experiencing a famine now for a number of years. She was at least, Ten years in Moab, if not longer. And news has only come now that the famine has been lifted. So that famine lasted maybe ten to fifteen years or longer. A long period of famine. The author is anxious that the character of the Lord will dominate the narrative. It is as if he wants his readers to place the details of his stories, pains and joys within the context of the God whose character is to deliver. The report that Naomi receives was not that the weather had broken or there had been an upturn in the economy, or that the threat of evasion had now passed. It is in the terms of the Lord's actions. The Lord has come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. See, their focus was on God all the time, on the providence of God. Yes, the famine, that was God. The relief from the famine, was God. They saw nothing else. They just saw the Lord. Here is the central theme of the whole of Scripture, really. All of life is traced directly to the hand of God. We must see that as believers. The good things, the bad things, it's God. It's God working all the time in our lives. God loves us. He never lets us out of his sight. He's constantly working. Sometimes things are good and sometimes they're not so good. That what I call that that dark side of the providence of God, working all things out in our lives for our good. She now then sets off with Ruth and Orpah to journey home. we see ruth coming to faith ruth ruth comes to faith because of what she sees in naomi real faith is always measured by its loving fruit real faith is always measured by its loving fruit in galatians 5 and 6 it says the only thing that counts The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You perhaps need to think about that. What is faith expressing itself through love? When I am am exercising faith, am I expressing it through love? If not, we say, well, is this godly faith? And Ruth, who comes to faith in God, she must have learned from Naomi the reality of faith. She had no other teacher. She worshipped Moabite gods. The only woman that she knew, the only, the only person in, in covenant relationship with God, was Naomi. So Naomi's life was a living testimony to Ruth. Ruth came to faith in God, through Naomi's life. Sometimes if you read the story, you think that Naomi is a bit bitter and twisted because of the hard things that happened to her. But I don't believe that's the case. I believe she lived a life of faith. Naomi is the main character of this chapter and she will remain so until the end of this chapter and then we move on to other characters but we see her unshakable faith. Naomi's loving concern for her daughter's in-law is first expressed in prayer. Now as you read through this chapter verse 8 It doesn't seem like it's a prayer, really. It seems like it's a statement, something she's saying, but really it's a prayer. Let me read it to you again, Ruth 1 and verse 8. She's saying this, May the Lord show you, may show kindness to you. It looks like she's just speaking to the girls, but she's not, she's praying. May the Lord show kindness to you as you've shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. I've said this book is about the providence of God. I want to look at prayer. How does prayer fit in with the providence of God? I think to some extent it's the flip side of providence. Prayer is the flip side of providence. See, if you go overboard on the providence and the sovereignty of God, you end up not praying at all. Because you say, well, God's going to do what God's going to do. What's the point of me saying or doing anything? Just let him call it and we'll have to put up with whatever he decides. That's the worst side of Calvinism if you ever get there. And I just hope you don't. Uh, but the idea that a sovereign God just does everything in spite of us. No, no. We're called to pray. And so prayer balances the whole thing up. I just want to list a few things that prayer is really. And you see the importance of it. Prayer is the acknowledgement of the fact that we believe that God is there. The very fact that you pray, it means you believe in the existence of God. If you didn't, you wouldn't pray. It also, it proves that we believe that God cares. We believe that God rules and he provides. What would be the point in praying to a God who didn't care, provide or rule? And we believe, we believe it in such a way that we're ready to do something on the basis of that, which is speak to Him. We speak to Him. If you don't speak to Him, then you don't believe those things about God. We speak to Him because we believe He is there watching and caring and wanting to intervene in our lives. Prayer is the activity by which we acknowledge we cannot be our own Lord. If you want to run your own life, then you won't pray. You won't pray. Why would you? You want to dictate the terms of your life. But praying is saying, Lord, I don't want the Lordship of my life. I want you to be the Lord of my life. That's why I come to you. I bring everything to you because you are my Lord. I want you to intervene. I want you to talk. We acknowledge His Lordship when we pray. Prayer is a way of expressing our yes to the conviction that God is working His purposes out in nature, in mankind, and in history. That's why we pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done. Lord, we believe... you're working everything out and we want your kingdom to be established in our lives and in nature and in the world. We believe that. That's why we pray. We pray. Uh, It's a way of responding to his invitation to be a member of his covenant family. He says, come and join the family. Come and be my son. Come and be my daughter. Come and be my co-worker in the world. Come join the family. And so we pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, we come and join the family of God. That's why we pray. Prayer is also our response to God's invitation to share in fellowship with Him, to express our union with him. Jesus, remember, at the Last Supper, he said, listen, if you obey me, I and the Father will come and live with you. We will fellowship with you. We will commune with you. And so prayer is our expression of this this fellowship, this union with God, this union with the Son. Also, prayer is taking our place in the government of this world. We looked at this It was some detail in the previous module. When we speak to the mountain, when we speak to the situation, what we're doing, we're entering into a realm of government. We have been uh, appointed, as it were. Uh, uh, Christ has delegated authority to us, and we rule with him in the world. Now, it doesn't mean we hold the reins, Oh no, not for one minute God's going to give us the reins of anything. He's too wise for that. We'd get it in a right old mess. He holds firmly onto the rail, reins. But But we see God inviting us into this government position with him. We have a place to exercise authority in the world. God says, come with me. And when you know what my will is, Start to exercise authority. Don't exercise authority outside my will. Learn of me. Learn what my will is. And then work with me. So in his supreme omnipotence, the all-powerfulness of God, in his supreme omniscience, the the all-knowing of God, God wills to share his rulership his sovereignty his governorship he's prepared to share it with us and in prayer we enter into that when you pray and you walk with god if your prayers aren't quite in line with him he rectifies them he amends them that in time we pray the will of god see jesus he knew the will of the Father. He knew it. He he just knew all the time. He knew the will of the Father. So his prayers were always perfect and his prayers were always answered. He would never have asked for anything that wasn't in the will and purpose of God. So he prayed perfect prayers that were always answered i'm excited about that in john 17 where he says he prays that the church will be one saying i can't imagine what that looks like lord but i'm looking forward to it because you prayed it and you prayed the perfect will of god so sometime before you return we're going to see something fantastic happen in the church that's going to cause us to be one as we learn to know god Our prayers will be more and more in line with the thinking of God, with his will. And so our prayers will always be answered. He tells us this in the Last Supper as well. He sort of says, as you know the mind of God and you set your heart on the things of God, pray what you will and you can have it. So as we pray in line with his will, as we get to know his will, well, it's through prayer that God uh, adjusts our prayers and we start to pray in line with him. It's through a life of prayer we discover how our own wills are to be more aligned with his sovereign and loving will for us. Naomi's prayer will just I just reiterate it again for you. A prayer for her daughter-in-laws expressed that she knew she knew her God. She knew that God would act in kindness towards these girls, and God would God would grant their desire to find husbands and a home. Listen to her prayer again. She says this. May the Lord show kindness to you. That's her prayer, talking to the girls. As you have shown to your dead and to me, may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. She is praying the mind and the will of God. She knows. She knows. She's not a rebellious... uh, bitter woman she knows the mind and will of God and she prays it they part there's a lot of weeping that is expressing the grief that they all feel the girls are weeping and Naomi is weeping the grief the girls felt in having to choose between naomi who they have grown to love and cherish and the hope of motherhood and a second marriage they they the girls find themselves in a difficult place in initially they they both refuse to go home they say no we're going to stay with you but naomi insists an Orpah, in the end, is persuaded to leave. Again, is this the providence of God? You see, God's all over this, isn't he? He's behind it all the time. He's working all the time. But he never says anything. He never intervenes. He never does a miracle. But they know he's there. This is what we learn from this. Do you know he's there all the time? Whatever's happening, good or bad, do you know he's there all the time? God is there. Naomi's reasoning with these girls had in mind the practice of what we called lever marriage. This was a a custom of of the ancient Jews by which a man is obliged to marry his brother's widow to raise a child for the dead man not only the jews but other cultures did this as well the idea being that the land remained with that family and that name so this is what she says to them about if i uh, if i could have children which i can't probably and uh, if they grew up you know all this time of waiting and that we'll go into this in more detail later because we deal with the whole leverite marriage thing so naomi stresses in this conversation how it's really impossible for them to stay and to find a husband and 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 everything else but we will see the situation is far from impossible for in the providence of god and through the action of a kinsman redeemer this is this is a wonderful picture as well. We we'll get onto this later as we study through the book, through the actions of a kinsman redeemer. Ruth is to find a husband, and also have a son. The grief is not only with the girls, but the grief is also with Naomi. She's being torn away from the girls. They'd struggled. They'd struggled for years together in this this strange land. Uh, They had struggled with the death of all their husbands. They'd struggled with it through difficult times. And this is what made them very close. You know, often it's through struggling that we build stronger relationships than through blessing. That's a good reason for God to take us through something difficult so that our relationships become stronger than if it was blessing, blessing. Despite the pain and even the anger, Naomi still holds on to the fact that she has, or what she has received, is somehow from the hand of the Lord. Everything she has received is from the hand of the Lord. What is impressive is her truthfulness of her life before God. She tells God exactly how she feels. She's very honest. She's angry. And she doesn't hide her feelings for one minute. She believes that God has permitted all that has happened to her. She truly believes this. Her faith in God's providence is certain, although what she feels is very painful. In fact, it appears so far in the story, there's more pain than blessing, and yet she trusts in the providence of God. We might not enjoy what God's doing to us, But God's purpose of love is unquestionable. It might not feel good, but God is doing what he's doing because his love is unquestionable towards us. Many of us have forgotten how to mourn, how to be sorrowful, Hmm. Uh, we're, we're always trying to be upbeat and happy and on top of things. And, and really, we've forgotten the art of mourning. Matthew 5 and 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are you when you're sorrowful, for they will be comforted. It's, it's part of the Christian life is to mourn. It's part of it, to feel sorrow, that everything doesn't quite work out. John 16.33 says, In this world you will have trouble. You will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And so will you eventually overcome the world. The hope of life in Christ becomes a full reality in the next world. Not this world when there's a new heaven and a a new earth, the full reality of joy is then. It says in Revelations 21.4, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. But this side of heaven, you will weep and you will lament before our sorrow is turned to joy. What does faith in God mean in times of affliction? Later, we can look back on suffering and sometimes discern the good that comes from it. Have you had that experience? It's all going terribly wrong, but then down the road you go, Ah, I see what God was doing. I see that had to happen for things to work out in the way that they did that's comforting but sometimes it's not explained you just went through something difficult and it's never been explained the dark face of God can be the only pathway to growth and maturity of character sometimes in some areas you can only grow through suffering only if you want to grow in endurance you must suffer if you want to grow in perseverance you must suffer if you want to grow in faithfulness you must suffer because the very words themselves conjure up the idea that you have to be an overcoming people against the odds against the difficulties at the time it doesn't feel like that it feels like a good time to moan and ask god what does he think he's doing and, and And it's unfair, and you shouldn't do this to me. I'm only doing my best. All I ever wanted to do was serve you, whatever way you put it. We just have to believe the providence of God is such. Naomi's experience bears witness to this. she humbly bowed beneath the hand of God in the firm belief, despite all appearances. It is the hand of a loving father. Ruth, we are told, she clung to Naomi. It's the same Hebrew word where it talks about Adam and Eve in, in the garden. Genesis 2 and 24. A man will leave his father and mother and be united it says in the niv the authorizer says to cleave to his wife to cling to his wife to be united to his wife so ruth said i'm going to cling to you naomi you have something very special in your life you've gone through such hardship and difficulties and your god you still love your god you still have faith in your god you still have belief in your god i have seen something in you And I am going to cling to you. I'm not going back to my old Moabite gods. I'm clinging to you. Ruth insists on staying with Naomi. She insists. She is so strong that Naomi gives up trying to persuade her to go. And then she she says this classic and beautiful affirmation of faithfulness of determination and loving commitment this is the verse of ruth the few verses this is the central verse this is so uplifting and building it's ruth 1 16 and 17 listen what she says she says where you go i will go and where you stay i will stay your people will be my people and your god will be my god she's confessing faith in god (laughs) this is this is her prayer of confession she's entering into the family of god she something has happened on the inside of her that she's declaring that her god is now her god i've chosen to believe in your god because of the life naomi that you have lived i must have your god Where you die, she says, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely. If anything but death separates you and me. She's swearing on her life. She will be faithful to Naomi. She will be faithful to the God of Naomi. Ruth wills to share Naomi's future to travel wherever she travels, to live wherever she lives. She will too put her faith in the one true God. It's a promise of committed faithfulness in life and beyond life. She says, where you die, I will die. In other words, where you die, I will stay with you until I die. Her commitment was beyond death. Ruth is prepared to affirm Naomi's covenant God as her own. Your God will be my God. The God you worship, Naomi, is the God that I will worship. It was Naomi's faith through all the uncertainty which pointed Ruth to the Lord. That an amazing testimony that all the difficult things that happened to her, she never cursed her God, but her life pointed Ruth to God. See, maybe going through difficult times, people are watching your life. And as you are strong in the difficult times, that's when people believe in your God, in your prosperity and in your blessing, they're not looking so much. But if you're faithful in the difficult times, it speaks volumes to other people. Often the experience of faithfulness in affliction, it points people to the Lord. Paul tells us this in the book of Philippians. It's in chapter 1, verses 12 and 14. I'll just read it to you. He says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged. And they speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly so seeing Paul in, in chains didn't frighten them off. It made them stronger. It made them more fearless and courageous. So as he's going through the adversity and Paul has is, is got a positive testimony all the time, it's encouraging the others. When Naomi saw that Ruth is determined to go with her, she says no more. She has nothing more to say. The two then arrive back in Bethlehem. And the women are there. The women who remembered her years ago leaving, they're there with their questions. Naomi had been away for many years. She had gone with a husband and two sons and come back a widow. And a widowed daughter-in-law as well when the question is asked, can this be Naomi? Of course, we've heard something of her reply already. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I love her truthfulness. The Almighty has done this. You see, if you're going to believe in the, in the providence of God, when it all goes a bit pear-shaped, the Almighty has done this to me. Don't be afraid. This is what this book is all about. The Almighty has done this to me. Sometimes we end up with a Christianity where if God isn't blessing us and making us smile and be happy all the time, it's not God. It is God. It's God. Naomi, we know, means pleasant, and Mara, bitter. She believed the bitter experiences she has coped with were from the Almighty himself. She calls him the Almighty. As you read through the Bible, you have to look at the different names of God. At the opening, um, they call the Lord, the Lord. That's Jehovah. And then when Ruth prays, she prays to God. And now Naomi is talking about the Almighty. So already we have three distinct names of God. And every time God is mentioned by something else apart from the Lord, it has significance. Another revelation describing God's character. The name means durability solidity trustworthiness the almighty is, is translated from the hebrew word shaddai el shaddai the trustworthy one the one who is a solid god is naomi saying you can see the bitterness i have experienced you can see the famine that I live through, the bereavement of my sons and my husband, the questioning that has gone on in my heart, the partings, the ripping apart of relationships, the apparent hopelessness in life. But I know God is El Shaddai, He's the Almighty One, He's Almighty. He's trustworthy. She's saying, I can leave the explanation, even the responsibility for this bitterness that I'm feeling with him. Naomi's, she's not blaming God, you see. It looks like it when we, we first read it. She's bitter towards God, but she's not. She wouldn't call him the Almighty. She acknowledges providential hand in her life, both in the the pleasant and the unpleasant. It is the person who knows God as the Almighty who can accept the apparent meaninglessness of her sufferings as part of God's providence and cope with it if placed in God's hands. Do you look around the world sometimes and just... Despair at what you see. But God is a providential God. God is sovereign. God is almighty. Somewhere in the purposes of God, all this makes sense. He hasn't lost control. He's, he hasn't lost his sovereignty. So whether you're looking at the global picture or your own personal life, you're looking to El Shaddai, the Almighty God. Naomi knows the Almighty with whom she can leave her bitterness, and He is the same Almighty who has brought her home. There's an illustration that a a number of preachers use, well, a number use it because it's a good illustration, It's the illustration of tapestry. So there's two sides uh, to tapestry. Not that I know anything about tapestry, you understand this. Um, But there are two sides, and I've seen Daphne do stuff, not quite tapestry, but similar. And because one side is a beautiful picture, and the other side is a mess, isn't it? It's like tangled bits and knotted bits and bits and bits bits and bits. And if you, your life, your life is the back. You understand? It's the back. You look at it and you go, this is a complete mess. There's all loose ends and tangled bits and knotted bits. But of course, what God does, he turns it. And you see this beautiful picture of who you are. That was necessary to get that. That mess on the back was part of making you who you are. God would have loved it all to be pleasant and nice, but it wasn't possible to make you who he wants you to be like that. It's not possible. But it is in Christ's own person that the fullest revelation of this truth becomes clear in the life of christ what do we see we see backstabbing and we see people trying to kill him and we see things just awful in his life just a mess a mess terrible terrible and of course we look on the other side and we see the beauty of christ with no blemishes and yet his life terrible things are going on in his life. The New Testament discloses him as God's suffering servant. You said, I want to follow Jesus. You wanted to follow the suffering servant, so you wanted to be a suffering servant too, I presume. And so the backside of the tapestry is the suffering, but the front side is... Is the beauty of what God is producing. As the Lamb of God on whom the sins and pains of the world are laid in Christ and in particular in Christ's life laid down in the death of the cross, God himself is entering into and sharing the depth of the world's suffering and sin just as he entered into the suffering of his son, he enters into your suffering. He doesn't leave you to suffer. He's there in it, and he's he's allowing it to happen as he's working his purposes out in the world, in your life, and you are in the world, working it out with him. In this first chapter of Ruth, then, Naomi has shared with us her faith in god what a beautiful woman she is going through all that but maintaining her faith in god a faith that has shone out really in contrast to the darkness of all her troubles
0: amen You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember if you would like to partner with Arise Ministry you can do so by visiting our website at ariseministry.org.uk Also if you would like to follow us on social media you can do so at Arise Ministry UK Arise Ministry, A Living Legacy